Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. With your host, Peter Legge, and finally back from Malawi, Lim. Hope you had a good trip, Peter. It's good to have you back. Thanks, Peter. And it gives me uh, great pleasure to welcome our special guest for this week, Professor Abibi Zagaya, distinguished African writer, editor, and publisher. He is chair of Holocaust and Genocide Studies in the Graduate School at the University of South Africa, at the moment visiting professor at Yale University, and very recently appointed as director of the prestigious Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. He has written extensively on African identities, on his birthplace, Ethiopia, and on South Africa, where he has lived for quite some time, and where he served for some years as director of UNISA Press. Professor Abibi Gazagea has initiated a number of path-breaking new projects, including a comprehensive encyclopedia of genocide and violence in Africa, uh, work on the restoration of the historical synagogue in Pretoria, and a new project to give wider exposure and recognition to African cultural artists, as in the case of the celebration of the Ethiopian millennium, about which he also edited a special issue of the Journal of Developing Societies. He is co-editor of the international accredited journals African Identities and African and Black Diaspora, and is also author or editor of numerous books and articles on such themes as African identities, nationalism, ethnicity, genocide, and socio-political trends in the Horn of Africa. He is also editor of a book series, Social Identities South Africa. Some of his books include Our Dream Deferred, The Poor in South Africa, and as well with Pal Alualia, African Identities, Contemporary Political and Social Challenges, both of those books published in 2002. The following year, 2003, he was editor of Media, Identity and the Public Sphere in Post-Apartheid South Africa. And in 2005, he edited Globalization and Post-Apartheid South Africa. Some of his earlier books covered topics such as forced labor and migration within Africa and the peasantry nationalism and democracy in Ethiopia. Last year, he even co-edited a new edition of the writings of Amilcar Cabral. Welcome, Professor Abibi Zagaya. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. Perhaps we can start with talking about African identities. And, uh, well, why is it important to study African identities? And after the, the burst of research over the last two decades, what can we now conclude about African identities? I think it stems from kind of the kind of social science literature which comes after, after the war, after the Second World War, after independence kind of there was an emphasis to only to study nationalism and broader issues and we tend to forget african individuals are agents i think we, we're coming around to it finally now to begin to appreciate of different identities as you recall we were not supposed to talk about say for instance about ethnicity uh, in post-independent africa and that has led or that has come to haunt us it's something which will never go away. And it's not only a problem or an issue in Africa, but throughout the world. For I think we're trying to come to terms and how we can transform these societies. 
and African identities and, and all different kind of identities have been ignored. We've been more interested about structural issues, broader issues, and we tend to forget those things. And I think that's the beginning of a discussion on, on, on that now. And that's one of the reasons we started this journal, is to give a space for people to begin to articulate. It's not to say nationalism was not important and those forces were not important. Maybe now we want to begin to look at these issues in a, in a different light. Right, and uh, sometimes scholars talk about the multiple identities and the overlaying of identities such as African and imperial and colonial or gender or class or ethnic identities. Uh, in, in your own experiences and, and your own identities, how have you managed to, to resolve and to reflect on, on the sorts of identities that, that, you have been, that you identify with? Yeah, first and foremost, I see myself as an Ethiopian, uh, as an African. Even within Ethiopia, I have, I would say, three nationalities or three ethnicities. Uh, my, and I'm not exceptional. Uh, I have Amhara background, an Eritrean background, and an Oromo background, and I'm not exception. Even though people are kind of still are forced to think of themselves as one group or the other. For what we need to do is it's acceptable to be both an Amhara, an Oromo, an Eritrean, and an Ethiopian as well, or an Eritrean. I can choose. These are personal choices and political choices. They are not biological. It's a choice which we make. Uh, I also lived in North America, whereby I identify myself with certain groups. And if we don't do that, we tend to kind of lose where we are in terms of what we're trying to achieve. Um, we tend, you know, many Europeans have have taken position in support of African nationalism, and many scholars have, have advocated. Not only scholars, but for instance, if we look at the role of the say the, the Irish in Southern Africa, the role they play in the Liberation Front. For so this is these are personal choices, these are political choices, and we tend to have this kind of rigid looking as though we have to be this or that. And what happens in that we learn is that we, we take different positions and they can be complementary and one can live with those things. One can take those, you know, one can be an Ethiopian and Pan-Africanist, one can be all different issues, one can be a socialist if you wish, or and those were not tolerated in, in the past. In many ways, I think the only country which managed to kind of pull this together, and there hasn't been much discussion, is what um, President Nerere in Tanzania have succeeded. Most Tanzanians have succeeded in creating, in creating a sense of oneness, say, unlike Uganda or, 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 or Kenya. Therefore, I think we need to work, at least if we accept that there are different identities within us and it's possible actually to come together also on certain issues, also to be separate as well. I think if we have that kind of broader outlook, and that's the way I've seen myself, that I've, over the last 30, 40 years, I have taken different identities where I am, where I am and what I, I take to be serious. Now, right, course, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating area. 
Go on, Peter. The issue of uh, identity is uh, central to a very important aspect of your recent uh, work, and that is uh, the study of uh, genocide. Uh, can you please tell us uh, more about uh, both the project on the Encyclopedia of Genocide and Violence in Africa, and also uh, your experience uh, at UNISA as the Chair of Holocaust and, and Genocide Studies in the Graduate School there? What we're trying to do is, first of all, the way we understand genocide in, 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 um, in Africa is through the prism of the study of Holocaust. And that has kind of misled us. Yes, we need to learn a great deal what happened during Second World War, what happened to Jewish people. But the nature of uh, violence and genocide in Africa is so different and I think we need to understand that uh, there is this assumption for instance minorities are always a victim I'm not sure that historically we can we can we can prove that actually minorities in the context of Africans in the be are be the perpetrators of the of, 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 of genocide well, give us a couple Second of examples thing, for instance in uh, during colonial period uh, most of the Europeans were minorities. We have this sense like what happened genocide in, in, in the context of um, Europe in terms of minority groups like Jews were being persecuted and, uh, and, 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 and they've been, they tried to el eliminate them as, as a group. Uh, in the African context, it's not necessarily, necessarily uh, true. Um, or the whole idea of a genocide, the way it was defined in terms of after Second World War, is that trying to eliminate a particular ethnic group, in case of, for instance, Jewish case. But in Africa, for instance, as we have learned what happened in Biafra, what happened in uh, Amin, Uganda, what happened in Mengistu um, Haile Mariam, Ethiopia, this were political gen political genocide. I think we need to begin to come to terms with that. Because so are you are you making the case then that we need a different definition of genocide than what Raphael Lemkin uh, first constructed uh, in the what the late forties uh, that the UN yes, approved in the convention? Yeah, definitely. I think we need to go back and we begin to redefine it, and we have to define it in the context of Africa if we're going to be effective. Or else we have, very, you know, if we want to understand, for instance, the most, com you know, in a way there is a kind of a, an understanding among scholars now, genocide had occurred in Namibia by the Germans. You know, we can describe it as violence and somewhat genocide what the Belgians, what the Belgians have done in, 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 in the Congo. And one or what happened in Algeria during the French, uh, the French occupation and the French... You know the French, if you wish, terror. In, in, I mean, we—I don't think there's much of a dispute. What is a dispute? A, a dispute and a more inter, a necessary of intervention is of actually post-independence uh, Africa. How do we understand it, and how can we stop it? What's happening in the kind of the debate which we are in a very peculiar position vis-à-vis -vis Sudan, for instance? Now, we have a situation. Most of the international, the international organizations mainly Europeans and, and Americans saying what's happening in, you know, they have yet to come to terms, this might be a genocide in Sudan. And then you have the Arab League and the African Union saying, I'm not sure what they're trying to say. 
in a way. Right. And they're trying to avoid it by coming with all kind of technology. And the same time, we have high, you know, you know, we need to bring in a political uh, the, the political issues when. Robert Mugabe sent his troops to Matebele land and eliminate people. Is that not a genocide? He was not questioning the. He was not questioning about the people being eliminated as being foreigners. They were opponents. Yes, yeah, yeah, so it's 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 a good example of a cover up. And, and another example of a of a clear genocide, of course, was was that in Rwanda. And uh, as you mentioned, the discussion on Darfur and Sudan and there's has been more problematic. Uh, and of course, there's also this uh, lingering debate about both the nefarious slave trade and also the the destruction and the killings caused by in, caused in uh, in South Africa under the apartheid regime. And so exactly. th yeah. there have been very interesting debates amongst historians about trying to calculate how to calculate the horrors of apartheid or the slave trade. And so these are obviously uh, issues that interest both sociologists, historians, political scientists, and um, it's very I'm interesting to, yeah, to hear I'm of your also, work here. Yeah, I'm, I'm very keen to encourage African scholars, especially Africans who are based in the continents, to begin to write about these issues instead of it's being written from outside. Because what happens there is this kind of defensive mechanism of trying to understand the post-colonial the post-colonial African situation and there is this kind of we have to I think we have to come to terms and we have to encourage this debate the Rwanda case is the, what is very interesting about Rwanda is when they when the, 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 the people who commit genocide in, in Rwanda they actually thought they would get away with it mm. uh, they would get away with it because they've seen what happened in other parts of the world what happened Say where you know what happened in China or what happened in 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 Russia and other places where a large number of people being killed, and the only thing which makes different was actually there was a, a group which was based in, in in Uganda which came in and defeated that group, and that's why because Western Europe and uh, and others would have maybe put a bit of sanction here if there was not an oppositional group to go in and defeat. Uh, that regime and take over. And I'm not saying the present regime of Rwanda is, uh, you know, is a democratic, etc. But if it was not that people, they would have gotten away with it. The same thing happened in, 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 in uh, Uganda, Samin. If Nerere didn't intervene, the killing would have continued. We don't have yet a mechanism to stop this kind of uh, genocide in Africa because we have what's been called, you know, the, the creation of the United Nations after the Second World War, the sovereignty of a nation, etc. I think we're beginning to question all those issues. When a government becomes a threat to its own population, we might want to call what it is. That is, it's a genocide, and we have to find... Before, that's what's encouraging about what's happening in, to me in Sudan, that I think there is a, almost an international consensus vis-a-vis -vis what's happening in Darfur. Well, what, how, how, how has the response uh, in South Africa uh, been? What has the response been to your teaching about genocide and your raising of these issues? Um, how have students responded to, to these, this reconceptualization? It's early stages. It's beginning to get popular kind of coverage. There was a whole page on the, the, the Mail and Guardian about two weeks ago. 
and I think they're beginning a reception because people are beginning, you know, we want to talk about current issues, what's happening, you know, what's happening in Zimbabwe, <laughs> what's happening in the Congo, etc. I think we hope what we're trying to do is this becomes in the forefront of thinking by students and researchers of what's happening in the continent. Therefore, you know, South Africa, it would be interesting how students will respond, but it's at, I must say it's at early stages. Therefore, we'll see, you know, we, would, we are putting a special issue together for African identities, which would deal with, uh, with, with, with this issue toward the end of this year. For our, it would be interesting, but I couldn't say the reaction is this or that, but it's beginning to catch up. Well, Perhaps we South, could. Uh, can, I, can I just follow that up, uh, Peter? Because South Africa is such an important country on the African continent, uh, economically and politically, and also militarily. Um, it seems to me that political will is often what uh, is necessary to stop uh, genocide uh, in its uh, traditional definition, or, or what Professor Zege is 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 uh, arguing for. Uh, do you see that South African uh, uh, leadership now having a political will to? to take the action that uh, seems to be necessary at times in some of these conflicts? I'm afraid to say no. Uh, we're just seeing it with the case of uh, the Tibet issues where uh, Delamama De was refused visa to come there and because of the Chinese pressure, etc. Whether South Africa would do the same thing vis-a-vis -vis the continent, I'm not sure. What I hope would happen is that so at least one thing interesting about South Africa is there is a vibrant civil society which will make noise. And for our attempt, it's not really, I'm not too much worried about what South African government's position would be uh, because we have seen how they reacted to Zimbabwe and other issues. Let me put it this way. South Africa is becoming almost, I mean, we have all this expectation of South Africa being most progressive uh, uh, government to take issues and on paper they've doing they, they've done very well but if we look in terms of their policies they let me put it this way they have become almost normal normal in the sense of they basically look at the interest of South Africa what they mean South Africa is South Africans economic interest South African position in relation to other countries for um, not putting too much hope on that but what I hope we do is that we have a vibrant civil society which would which will raise these issues and Perhaps in a way that's also the, yeah. that's what I'm also looking in Africa that is we cannot really depend upon African government as we see it with AU now vis-a-vis the force I think we, we need to, 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 to work with civil society one of the idea of the genocide is actually it's not only it's going to be a genocide encyclopedia. It's not going to be only the kind of encyclopedia which will be used by universities, but we hope to popularize it so that these things could be taught at school and people would have a better sense of identities, a better sense of their own history. So that if we actually and if we ever learn anything about Rwanda, is that that we need a comprehensive understanding of both Tutsis and Hutsis, Hutsus and how they interact with each other. And that kind of, I mean, at the end of the day, that knowledge is going to be the most important variable. And I think that's what the, the encyclopedia is all about, is that we're going to be pushing a better understanding of different nationalities or ethnicity relation and that how people can coexist, how can they live with each other. I think that's my emphasis, more than hoping that government will 
you know, the different African government because it's been, I think we'd be disappointed. Uh, I think we should learn from what happened in the last 20, 30 years in post-independent Africa. The African government tend to be very conservative and they tend to be protecting each other. Right. Maybe that's too harsh, but, but that's the way no, I see it. Right. But perhaps we can come back to identities and... Uh, with your Ethiopian background and your years in South Africa, you're very well placed to talk about these sorts of identities. And I'm wondering about the uh, the sociology, the culture, the history of Ethiopians in in South Africa. And I recall a, a wonderful dinner in in Melville in Johannesburg at an Ethiopian-owned restaurant. How are how are Ethiopians uh, faring in South Africa today? I mean, we have also had this very uh, nasty turn towards xenophobia, which I, I think has been pronounced against uh, uh, Zimbabweans and Nigerians at times. Uh, what is the position of Ethiopians today? Ethiopian, there is a large number of Ethiopians who have been working. And most of them are basically, I would say, economic immig- uh, migrants. Uh, who are working. Basically, what happens is they see a gap in South Africa, and I think we have to have a, a comprehension. You have, you know, the majority of black South Africans have never had a chance to have a proper, proper education. They were denied to have business. They always have to go to town. They never have any kind of business activity in the townships or in the rural area. They're always dependent. Now, with the change in 1994, a large number of African migrants have come from all over the uh, other continent. The Ethiopians have succeeded in penetrating, kind of, to become what to put it, what uh, what basically if you, in, in Transvaal, for instance, what Indians used to do as shopkeepers. They were between the miners, I mean, the British miners and the workers. They used to supply Indians used to supply. Uh, materials like uh, blankets, etc. The Ethiopians now go in rural areas. If you go to Houteng now, you find Ethiopians going, kind of filling a market where they're serving rural population by providing basically Chinese goods and they have managed to prosper. Therefore, if you go to places like uh, Johannesburg or Pretoria, there are sections of it where it's quite run by Ethiopians. Uh, there is a place called Jeppe Street in, or Marabastand in, uh, Jeppe Street in Johannesburg, Marabastand in, in Pretoria, where you find a large number of Ethiopians thriving because they bring with them skills. Mm. However, there is, you know, you, you begin to see resentment by the locals because you have, you know, independence, independence had come and they don't see much result. That's the first thing. There is that kind of resentment. The second thing is actually what happened with all those attacks. It's like, I think we, we don't have a comprehensive understanding of it. I think it was well organized. It was as any kind of violence is always organized by some elite groups in the South African context. My reading of it is, uh, is that they used a particular section of the new elite used you know, when they are not successful in competitive politics, they use this kind of more politics to advance. And it took a long time for South African government and for President Mbeke to actually come out and apologize because initially they said, oh, this is organized by uh, some 
you know, some forces which trying to undermine South Africa and the NC, etc. And it took them a while to kind of people start laughing at that kind of explanation. This is not 1980 South Africa. This is 2000 <laughs> South Africa. And I think they finally begin to turn to that. And South Africans have yet to comprehend. Therefore, there is this kind of contradiction and tensions which has yet to come and open. South Africa is it's extremely powerful economically. South Africa is presence in the continent is very powerful, whether it's in you know agriculture, in in modern technology, etc. South Africans have yet to come. A certain section of the uh, the, the population is benefiting from it, and the, the the local population have yet to understand how they belong, how they are Africans. Because most of them have these notions when you talk to both white and black South Africans, they talk about Africa as though South Africa is not part of Africa. But it's yeah. a long way to come. It's a long way to come. Right. Well, maybe we have a few minutes left. Maybe we can uh, uh, take the cue from uh, Professor Zegay and, and uh, see what uh, is going to happen at the uh, WITS, at the uh, Institute for uh, Social and Economic Research. Uh, uh, under your leadership, uh, what are your main ideas? How are you going to change uh, the Institute's intellectual direction? And, and what kind of role will it play in, in civil society, not just in, in Southern Africa, but uh, in, in Africa as a whole? Yeah, I must say first, um, wider in a very short period over the last 10 years have become one of the most successful social science, you know, social science uh, research institutes. Uh, commenting, writing, both at uh, academic level and at popular level, trying to explain issues. Therefore, in many ways, I'm kind of lucky. I'm, I'm, I'm stepping in into one of the most successful institute in the continent and in, Af in, in South Africa. My idea would be is how are we going to deal with African issues and how we can make Africa the center of research? Uh, I'm going to be looking, one of the main concerns I have is there is very little work done on African economies by Wiser and other groups. And that is not really Wiser's problem, but it's been the problem of South Africa uh, in the sense of mining and other interests have been dominating that. Therefore, we need to, one of the things I hope to work on is to develop that. The second thing is actually to, to, to look into the continent, to collaborate with African scholars. For instance, one of the things I hope to do with the genocide project is that is to allow, you know, to basically recruit, you know, the, the genocide to be written, both the entry to the, to, 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 to the encyclopedia to be written by African scholars who are based in the continent. And hopefully Wiser can play that role by inviting people to come spend time time there. For this, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of issues which I would like to bring. For I hope to build upon what is, has been a very successful institute. Therefore, there's a lot of issues. I mean, it's, there's been too much of emphasis on cultural issues. I hope we can do something on kind of economic issues, serious economic issue, and where Africa fits. Um, I'm interested in seeing, in terms of understanding the importance of African knowledge production, which I have some experience and the the, the, the kind of I think Peter knows this, the absence of 
publications and contribution to knowledge production at a you know at 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 at, at, a, at a global level africa comes at the bottom some of it is our fundamental epistemological issues for instance how can we write about say a sculpture which comes out of out of zimbabwe which is as good as you can find anywhere else but we haven't yet used any kind of language to explain that or how can we kind of you know uh, talk about um memories how can we you know you know let, I mean, one good example to give is for instance one of the things which has been taught about africa is that africa doesn't have writing therefore it doesn't have this knowledge but what we have done is especially in terms of orality is that we have succeeded in bringing issues of orality to the forefront of academic uh, academic uh, scholarship for what I, i hope we do is that there is a lot of interesting knowledge production throughout the continent and wiser could play a role in bringing it into the forefront we don't have to wait for people to come from western institution to tell us this is knowledge we you know we we know that's what i've been trying you know we need to give voices voices to different forms of thinking and to different of it doesn't have to be written in, in all aspect of it for africa is a very vibrant culture a very uh, versatile place and i think we hope we you know i hope wiser will play the role to to put that to put those kind of thing into into the world map i don't know that this makes sense to you Yes indeed and uh well we wish you all the very best in 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 taking Wiser uh, along these uh crucial directions and Professor Bibi Segeya thank you very much again for talking with us today thank you so much Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Shiel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afropod, that's a f r i p o d .aodl.org. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast@matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.